Amen. You may be seated. You know, when I read the scriptures, it says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to resurrect our mortal bodies. I'm grateful that we, we are not serving a king that was not victorious. The fact that the tomb is empty shows us that he is victorious. And let me tell you something. We don't have to just praise a risen Savior on Easter. But because the tomb is empty, every Sunday is Easter. Man, can you give God a praise one more time for raising Jesus, showing he has a power oh, even over death, over sickness. Man, well, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. I'm not sure how you came into the house of God today, but uh, I, I pray that you came in today as David came in. And Psalm 122, which is came in with gladness. Anybody glad to be in the house of God? Amen. Well, listen, I'm going to cut out the small talk and, and jump right to it. So if you can do me a favor and grab your Bibles, uh, go to the book of Romans and then make a left turn and meet me in the book of Mark. That's where we're going to be at today. I, I know we got Romans up behind us, but, you know, after three weeks of getting beat up by Paul, I think we deserve a little bit of a break. And so we, 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 before we jump into chapter three, we are going to spend some time somewhere else. We'll be in Mark chapter three. Uh, that's where we're going to be. Um, before I jump in, let me quickly re-announce what Gabe had already announced in the first service uh, and in the announcements today. And that is uh, that we are so excited about this idea of us celebrating three years as a church, our anniversary. Amen. You can clap. Amen. I saw a little, a little Nancy Pelosi clap. Listen, I, I really am excited about this. The Bible often calls us to stop and remember. If you look at Israel in the Old Testament, God would tell them that there are points and times where God would say, grab those stones from the Jordan River and just and use them as a memorial to, to stop and think about my faithfulness and my grace and my mercy towards you. And so that's what we'll do next week. We will uh, turn up for Jesus in here. Uh, and there's a couple of things you should know about Anniversary Sunday. Number one, come early next week. Uh, we tend to draw in more traffic on Anniversary Sunday, and so I, I really am desiring to make sure that you guys get a seat. So I want you guys to come early, but don't come by yourself. That's the second thing. Come with two or three people, because celebrating is always better when you're doing it with your family and friends. And so text that person that you've been dying to, to bring to church with you. Uh, knock on that next door neighbor and say, you coming to church with me next week. I'm paying for the Uber. Uh, do that whole thing and make sure that you bring somebody else with you. Also, we're going to be celebrating between each service. And so after the 930 service, we want you to head down to the basement. Let me say it again, the basement. If, if you go on the first floor, uh, we're not paying for jerk chicken. And, and we're going to have some finger foods in the basement. So head down to the basement after the 930 service, after this service, the 1130 service, head down to the basement, and then we'll end our day in the basement celebrating together after the 130 service. Uh, and last, I, I, this is more of a, a promise than it is an announcement. I, I promise you, you will be surprised when you come next week. We have a very, very, very good surprise for you, and I want you all to partake in it. I was sworn to secrecy, and so I, I can't say what the surprise is. Just know you should be here. All right, let's turn to, to Mark 3. You should be there by now. If you're there, if you can just respond by saying, yep. Yeah. All right, verse 1. <laughs> verse 1 says, again, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Verse 2, and they, meaning the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath 
so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, meaning the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Underline this last phrase. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. I want to preach this uh, afternoon or this morning from the topic entitled Restoring What is Withered. Restoring What is Withered. Let's look to the Lord before we dig in. Uh, Father, we echo the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, verse 10. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we do pray and give all glory. Amen. Amen. Uh, this morning I woke up and uh, got up pretty early, but I woke up with, a, with just a, a spirit of generosity on my heart. I can't explain why, just there, there was something in me that just wanted to be generous. I ask you every week to come in uh, and, and make sure that you're giving towards the work that we are doing here, the, the bride of Christ, make sure you're pouring money in here. And so uh, I woke up this morning, actually wanted to reverse it and actually give uh, some money away. So I went to the ATM this morning and I pulled out a crisp $20 bill. And, and, and uh, I did this with every intention to give it away to somebody today. And the only way I can give it to you is if you respond back to me. So uh, let's do it like this. Who wants this $20 bill? All right, I see you. I hear you. I hear you. Here's a quick question. Here's a quick question. Would you still want this 20 I see that hand still up. She's like, I ain't putting it down. Would you still want this $20 bill if I did this to it? You still want it? Okay, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. Would you still want this $20 bill if I threw it on the ground and stomped on it with my Doc Martens? Listen, listen, wait, wait, wait. Before you can respond, I've walked through the subway this morning. I've went to the bathroom already. Okay, so now that we stomped this down, do you still want this $20? Okay, so, so here's the reason you still want this $20. You still want this $20... Because it's still $20. Listen, hear me. It doesn't matter that I crumbled it. It did not lose value. It doesn't matter that I stomped on it with my dirty shoes. It doesn't matter because it did not lose value. And just like this $20 bill did not lose value when I stomped on it and when I crumpled it, it does not matter. See, our lives are filled with moments of being stomped on. Our lives are filled with moments of being trampled on and being drugged through the dirt. But here's what I want to promise you this morning. Just like this $20 bill did not lose value when I stomped on it, you don't lose value even though your life might be crumbling right now. In God's eyes, you're still valuable. And we come to a text where with a man that feels like this $20 underneath my foot. I said I'm going to give this out. Who, who wants this $20? Look at this. Come on. You can have it. She won it. She came up. Nina, go get you some brunch. Because I know y'all love brunch. You can only get an appetizer with $20, though. You can't get much. We, we, we come to a text. We come to a text. We come to a text with a man that, that feels like that $20 bill that's underneath my foot. He, he has a physical condition, and the Bible calls this physical condition a withering hand. Here's what's interesting. Whenever you read the scriptures, you typically don't read about men with withering hands. We hear about somebody that has leprosy. 
You hear about somebody that has blindness. In fact, I'll go on record to say this is the only place where we see a, a, a miracle and a healing on somebody that has had a physical condition called a withering hand. This man feels unloved. This man feels unwanted. This man feels used. He feels hopeless. And that's the case with many of you in this, mor- this morning when you came in. I don't know what you came in here wrestling with. But I'm pretty sure that some of you came in this, this morning and it was hard to even get out of bed because life has punched you in the face. Many, many of you have came in this morning and you, you, you feel the weight of life. You feel like, like, like you are depressed and you have anxiety. But the reality is I don't want you to disconnect that feeling, though. See, see I, I don't want you to put on the church face and leave your problems at the door. No, bring them in with you this morning. Because I want you not to live in some false sense of reality. I want you to realize how good God is and how he's going to restore that situation. The fact that you made it out this morning is proof that God is pursuing restoration in your life. And so we have a man here who has issues and his issues will be resolved by two things. Number one, because of who's in the church but also because he's in the church. Don't miss this. Look at verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue and there was a man there with a withering hand and they watched Jesus. The the scene is set. Mark sets the scene for us in verses one and two, really verse one and, and two a, he sets the scene by letting us know who's in the synagogue. Please don't miss this. They're not in the market that they are not uh, in some remote village. They are in the synagogue. They're in the place of worship. Now, there's three individuals that are, that are listed as being in the synagogue, really two individuals and one group of individuals. The, 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 the first one that's mentioned in verse two, it says, they watched Jesus. The question you should be asking is, who is they? Well, if you jump down to verse six, verse six identifies who the they is as the Pharisees. You got to understand something about the Pharisees. I'm not sure if you know much about them, but the Pharisees are an influential religious sect within Judaism during the time of Christ and during the time of the early church. They were the religious elite. The the Pharisees were known for their uh, religiosity. They were known for legalism. They were known for their personal piety, and they were known for a strict adherence to the law. I know you think that you're spiritual because you came to church this morning. You think you're religious because you bought your Bible. You know, millennials only bring their phones, but you brought your Bible today. for so, so you feel religious. But if you compare your religiosity to the religiosity of the Pharisees, they will roll you up and smoke you. You know how I know? Here's how I know. Because the Pharisees often did not just adhere to the law. They thought God was too loose on the law, so they added extra laws. That's how religious they were. And, and, and so when I read this, I realize that the religious fools show up at the synagogue. The religious nuts made it to church, which shows me and proves to us that you can be religious and not know Jesus. Are you reading the text with me? You, you can be you can go to church and not know Jesus. You, you do understand. You can sing in the choir and not know Jesus. You can be on the praise team and not know Jesus. You can say Shadna Bosea and not know Jesus. You can run around the church and not know Jesus. You can play an instrument and not know Jesus. How do I know? Because the religious fools showed up to the synagogue. And so the first group of people that we get to see let in on who's in the synagogue is religious fools that don't want to worship Jesus but critique him. 
So that's the first group. The second group that are the second person we get let in on that's in the synagogue in verse three. I mean, verse one says Jesus is there. Are you reading this with me again? He meaning Jesus entered into the synagogue. Now, I understand. I really do. I understand how the religious leaders get to the synagogue. They're probably there to teach. I don't know what they're, maybe they're there uh, just because out of, you know, their religiosity. So they went to church. They make sense. But Jesus showed up to church. See, see, Jesus showing up to church is interesting to me because really Jesus is modeling for us the importance of attending worship service a worship gathering. How do I know that? Because this text doesn't just say that he entered into the synagogue. Don't miss this word again. He entered the synagogue, meaning he's been there before. Jesus often went to the synagogue, the place that was supposed to be designed to worship him. He subjected himself to teaching that wasn't up to par with him. He subjected himself to preaching that wasn't up to par with his preaching. In other words, Jesus shows us infinite humility. Because here's my question. What can you teach Jesus? Jesus showing up to church. What? Like if Jesus walked in right now and sat right up here, I, I wouldn't be able to finish the sermon. Like we all knew it was Jesus. I'm taking the headset off, putting it on him. I'm going to just lay down here and let him preach. But that's exactly what happens in the text. Jesus shows up to church. And if Jesus showed up to church, what's your excuse? If Jesus showed up to the worship gathering, what is your excuse for staying in the bed? See, the, the problem with us is we think we're more spiritual than Jesus. Because if you think you can grow in your spiritual formation and you think you can grow in spiritual maturity without the bride of Christ, then you're more spiritual than Jesus. Why? Because Jesus went to church. And, and this is not some, this is, I promise you, I didn't wake up this morning and try to figure out some backdoor way to boost attendance. That's not the goal here. The, the goal of our time uh, of me saying this is to pastor you in the unhealthy thinking that people are having these days of saying, I can grow outside of the church. I don't need the church. And it's a dangerous place to be. It is dangerous for you to think that you are more spiritually mature than the bride of Christ. Girl, you know, I just feel like I outgrew the church. Boo-boo, how you outgrew the church? Like, my, my G, how did you outgrow the church of the, this is what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that this is the pillar ground in truth, the church of the living God. You outgrew Christ's bride? How does that happen? It is what happens. It doesn't happen. You think you're growing, and I promise you it's really spiritual warfare. You thinking you don't need your brothers and sisters in Christ to be sharpened. And so I'm always amazed at the arrogance and the folly of the person that thinks that they don't need the church. Listen, you need the church, and I promise you, even though the church has issues, like our church isn't absent of issues. If you're coming here and you're like, I like to worship, you, you know, I, the pastor, you know, wears cut-up jeans, so I think that's cool, so I can bring my coffee in, and, and you think that you're coming here to escape church hurt, we're a bunch of sinners. It's only a matter of time until we light you up, too. Now, we don't mean to. We, we, don't, we don't mean to, but in reality, we're not absent from, of church hurt. But even with the church's issues, I still love the church. I lo Does anybody else love the church? And I love the church. I love the church because I realize that this is God's instrument and his, his main mission in order to reach the community and reach the world. He does it through the church, not a mercy ministry, 
not your individualistic Christianity. He does it through the collective body coming together to get strengthened, to get back out in the world, to impact the world because we got fueled up here. So that you cannot grow outside of the church. So I'm getting off topic. Jesus is at the church. The Pharisees are at the church, but there's somebody else there. Look at verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue. There was a man there. Okay, who's this man? A man with a withered hand. We don't know his name. We know his condition. We don't know his name. All we know is that he has a physical condition that's called a withering hand. And you would think that when Mark wanted to do the church uh, attendance, when he wanted to do the roll call of who was in the church, I thought this text would have read differently. I thought he would have called out somebody that's a little bit more notable. I thought he would have said Jesus was there and a man with a Ph.D. or Jesus was there and a man with a Maybach and Jesus was there and a dude with good credit. But he doesn't do that. When he decides to call out who is there, he picks a man that has issues. Now, now that says to me that the church isn't the place that you run from with your issues, but the church is a place that you run to with your issues. See, you, you think you're going through and I just got to get through this season and then I'll be back. How can you get through it without the church? Some of you need restoration in your marriage. Some of you need restoration in your emotional stability. Some of you need restoration in your physical state. How in the world can you get past a place of, of healing and get to restoration without the church? So I'm reading this and I'm realizing that there's a man with a withered hand that shows up to the church. And despite all of the issues at the church, the man shows up. But what we do is we show up to church, but we show up just to get in and get out and we hide what needs restoring. Like, that's what we do. We don't come in and say, I'm going to just lay it all out. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to find a couple people that I can go deep with. No, I just want to get in and out to check the Jesus thing off and say, I did church today. But in reality, who knows you? Who knows your issue? Who knows the dysfunction? Who knows the area that needs to be restored? Now, now, I know you guys are more spiritual than me, but earlier this week on Tuesday, before I sit down and wrote the sermon, what I have to do is I have to hear from God. So I sit down and I read the passage over and over and I don't go past it. I just read it over and I just I'm like, Lord, speak over. And I know some of you can read it one time and God just lays out the whole sermon for you. That ain't how he do me. He, he's usually going he, to he's usually going to have me read it a few times so that I can get it in my spirit. And when I was reading it a few times over and over again, there was something that stuck out to me that I didn't notice before. The word hand. Look at your scriptures between verses one through five. The word hand is used four times. It's used in verse one. It's used in verse three. It's used twice in verse five. Now, here's what's interesting. When I first read this passage, I don't know why, again, I know it's not deep enough for y'all. When I first read the passage, for some reason, I don't know why, but I just imagined this man as having two hands that needed, that needed restoration. But then upon further research, I realized that the word hand is singular. It is not plural, which means, stay with me, he had one bad hand and one good hand. Now, you got to understand something about ancient times. When you got to the synagogue, when you got to the temple, anybody that had any physical deformity wasn't allowed in. You, you got to understand that. So I'm scratching my head trying to figure out how does the man with a deformity get inside the synagogue? Let me use my spiritual imagination. Here's how I think he gets in. Because he has one good hand, he's able to walk in and shake hands with one good hand 
and hide the hand that needs restoring. And many of us, that's what we do when we come into church. We walk in and we say, look at all my good stuff that's going on. But you hide the dysfunction. You hide what needs restoring. And nobody, nobody, nobody ever, ever got restored by lying about their issues. You get restored by being honest. Because honesty is the foundation of restoration. You cannot be restored. You cannot restore what you're not willing to be honest about. And some of us, we, we, would rather, we would rather come in and say, girl, how you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. No, you're not. You're, 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 you're dysfunctional. You need restoration. And it's okay because we all need restoration in some area. And, and so when I, when I read this, I realize that the one good hand he had, he probably was showing everybody. And the, the hand that was withering, he hid, which is what all of us, all of us, all of us do. We come into the place of restoration. And instead of saying, help. We say, I'm good. My marriage is good. I don't need restoration in my marriage. I don't, I don't need restoration with my, my emotional stability. I'm good, but what you're doing is you're hiding what Christ died for. He died to restore that situation. He died to bring life to what was dead. And so the Bible says that the man with the withered hand here comes in to the synagogue. But can, can, I, can I also point out something else here? The withered hand pales into comparison with what the real issue in the room is. The withered hand is not the real issue. The real issue is the withering hearts of the Pharisees. How do I know that? Because he knows that the man is there in verse 1, but Jesus doesn't heal him until verse 5, which means verse 2 to verse 4, Jesus is dealing with withering hearts. See, see what you did when you came and you said, oh, he's preaching about the man with the withered hand. Cute story, but that don't relate to me. I got two good hands. I'm ambidextrous, but you might have a withering heart. Your, your, your heart might be on its way to die because that's really what withering is. Like withering doesn't speak to what's dead. Withering speaks to the process of dying. You, you got to understand if I brought a plant up here and put a plant up here and, and, and said, look at this, look at this plant. Uh, and, and then next week we came back. I didn't water it. I left it in the dark. We would start to see it withering. That doesn't mean it's dead. That means it's on the way to dying. And some of you came in this morning and you're withering. You're not dead and you think you're good. That, that situation ain't dead. That, you ain't get a divorce yet, so you, you think you're good, but you got issues because you're withering is what the scripture says. And so the man, with the withering hand is there, but the Pharisees with withering hearts is there. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 says, having the eyes of our heart enlightened. And in other words, I can get to heaven with one bad hand. I can get to heaven with two bad hands, but I cannot get to heaven with a withering heart that doesn't trust Jesus. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are there and their hearts are withering. Let's get into the text. Verse two. Y'all with me? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withering hand, come here. Now, he's going to use the man with the withering hand, not not in a shameful way, but to expose the wickedness of the hearts of the Pharisees. And he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. But they were silent. Did you see this? And he looked around at them, watch the emotion, with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. In other words, the Pharisees showed up to church, but they didn't show up to church. They didn't show up to the synagogue to worship Jesus. They showed up to critique his ministry. 
Uh, okay. You act like we, I know you don't do that, right? You, you come to church, you always ready to worship. You come to church, you always ready for the word. But there's another group that comes and all they want to do is critique. Then there's another group that, that they are looking for issues. I, I was talking to Tashina earlier this week, and when Tashina and I was talking, I, I was telling her, I was talking about how if you look at something long enough, you'll always be able to find something wrong with it. Like the church isn't absolute. We're not above critique. Although I will say your critique comes across a lot better when you're actually helping. Because we critique from afar. Some of us, the greatest contribution we had to the church all year was to critique it. And so we come into the place and be like, I bet you when I get up these steps, hospitality is not going to speak to me. And that's the one Sunday that Tasha don't speak to you. And you're like, see, I told you. Now that's what we do. Or we, we come in and be like, I bet you they're going to, yes, a small little space. And they're going to sit me in between two people when it's a seat across there. And I could have sat there and they told me not to. We're looking for issues. We're like, I'm going to bring my kid. But when I bring my child, they're not going to have child, child, child care for me. They're not going to have enough room. And you get there. And that's the Sunday. We're over capacity. You're looking for issues. Yeah. Oh, we get to the church. Some of us leaders do it. We were like, this ain't my Sunday to serve. Y'all ain't have me to serve. Y'all ain't have me set up, but I come here and y'all need help. See, we're looking for issues instead of coming to worship. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They came to the synagogue not to worship. Jesus is present. They're not there to worship him. They're there to give him feedback on what he could do better. That's a dangerous place to be. Earlier this week, in fact, two weeks ago, I came to the church for a ministry event. I wasn't in charge of the event. I, I didn't even know, you know, what was going on in terms of the logistics of the event. I just wanted to come and, and be a participant. And when I was coming up the steps, I was walking up the steps with the spirit of critique. I said, I bet you that ain't going to be there. I bet you that ain't going to be there. And I got, I'm just confess my stuff. I got all the way up and I pointed out 10 things that could have been better. 10, 10 things that could have been better. And when I got up here, I realized I was convicted because I was like, I didn't come to worship today. I came to point out everything else that could be better told my wife, I said, babe, I, I got to take a walk. I walked down to food town, went grocery shopping, came back. And when I got back, I was praying. I was going, Lord, let me go in with a spirit of enjoyment, a spirit of gladness, and a spirit to just sit and worship in your presence. Instead of coming in saying, why isn't this here? Why isn't this here? Come here. Why don't we have this? Why don't we have this? But that's what many of you do. We come into the place of worship, but we're not worshiping. We come into the place of worship really to give feedback on what could be better. And so He's angered. Do you see the emotion? He's angered that there is a man there and they don't. It's so inhumane that they would rather see him wither and die with his hand than actually see him restored. Can you imagine that coming to the church and we publicly celebrate your restoration, but privately we want to see your demise? We, we don't want to see you actually get restored. We want to keep you. We want to see your marriage fall apart. Can you imagine that? That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, and it moved Jesus to two emotions. Do you see the emotions? Underline them. Jesus was moved with anger, and he was moved with grief. And his anger isn't some selfish anger. His anger is that they didn't want to see a fellow brother restored. That's why he was angry. That is why Jesus was upset, because he looked at he looked around at the room and realized not only are you here not to worship me, but you're here to make sure that your brother stays from getting restored. And I don't know what you need restoration from in here, but let me help you. I want to celebrate 
that area. Because really, when you get restored, really what God gets is the glory. That's why I say don't hide it, because when you hide it, you're stopping God from getting the glory out of the area that everybody could be like, you was doing what? And God restored it? It gives God glory. And so in the text, he's moved. He's moved to anger and he's moved to grief. And when he walks up and down these aisles, I wonder when God looks at our heart. This is what I was thinking this week. When God looks at our hearts and he roams up the aisles of Epiphany Church and he sits next to you and he does an inventory, what emotion is evoked in him? What do you, see, we think that God is always pleased and happy and glad with us. When he looks not at your actions, when he looks at your heart, does it move him to grief? Does our lack of compassion for others move him to being angry? Does our lack of being nice, because ain't nothing worse than a nasty Christian. What, does that move him to anger? Does that move him to grief? Well, that's exactly what it moved him to in here. Now, now watch what the text does. I'll end here and say, finally, he says in verse 5, stretch out your hand, which is interesting because he couldn't stretch it out without Jesus. It's shriveling. It's withered. But by faith, he knew that Jesus was the one that was able to restore him. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And the Bible says he stretches out his hand and he's able to be restored because of his obedience and his faith to God. Now, here's what I want us to do. I'll end by saying this. I want you to replace withered hand with with what's withering in your life. What is that area that you've been hiding? What is that area that needs restoration? What is that one area that you ain't told nobody about, but you know it's dysfunctional? Don't hide. That's why I said don't check it at the door. Bring it in with you because I want you to repent for not taking it to the Lord. I want you to get before the Lord so that you can be restored. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I would be remiss if I didn't give somebody the opportunity to respond and say, I need restoration in that area. Some of us in this room, when, I, when I'm talking and you're writing, I know you're thinking about that one area. But don't disconnect that area. Before the worship team comes, I want to give you a chance to respond and say, I need restoration. In front of, publicly in front of my brothers, publicly in front of my sisters, I want to be restored. If that is you, do me a favor. We ain't got all day. We got another service after this. Nothing spooky, nothing deep. Come to this altar so we can pray. If you know, you know there's an area that you need to be restored in. You know that, that there's areas that is dysfunctional, but you ain't ever told anybody about it. Get down to this altar. I see you filling the aisles. I see you coming. Thank you for your boldness. It's most of the church. And if you can't get down here, just stand up as a sign that I need to be restored. I don't know what the area is. Listen, I don't claim to be prophetic. I don't claim I, I can't call you out this morning and say I know what your specific issue is. But what I can promise is that all of us need restoration somewhere. Father, I pray for every single person that is on this altar. Every person that has been hiding, every person that has shown the good hand but failed to show us the hand that's withering. Father, I pray for that person. Some of us need restoration of peace. Some of us, our lives have been chaotic. Our lives have, we've just 
been busy and we've tried to mask the fact that we need restoration by just being busy. But Father, I pray, oh God, pray for that one person. That person that knows that their family issues have been dysfunctional. Not just marriages, but that person that just can't seem to get family issues right. We're so dysfunctional. And some of it is not their fault. Some of it is our fault. So we repent this morning and ask, oh, God, that you would restore us. Restore us so that we can be a living testimony. Use us as a trophy piece. Not to say, look at me, but say, look how great God is. That he's able to restore this type of situation. Some of you are struggling with shame and struggling with embarrassment. Some of you, it's not like you're not saying like it's not gossip. It's real. Like you really did it. And Lord, I pray for restoration because I realize, oh, God, that in this place of honesty, in this spirit of repentance, you're able to work and you're able to use us in imaginable ways. So, Father, build testimonies on this altar. Every single person that's on this altar, I pray over them this morning that they would be a testimony for your glory and for your grace. Use them, oh God, like you've never used them before. And when we walk back to our seat, may we walk back with a new sense of newness of life. May we walk back with transformed hearts. Even if we got good hands, Lord, I pray that our hearts, you would do spiritual surgery on us. We don't need a Band-Aid over an old heart. We need a new one. We need you to take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. For your glory and for your honor, for your fame, for the renown of your name, we do pray. Amen.